Good morning, friends, or should I say, good Friday. My message today is titled, Why Did Jesus Have to Die? And our text is found in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 to 26. Actually, the question is not, why did Jesus die? The question is, why did Jesus have to die? Well, I think we're going to see at least three answers in our text for this morning. And here's answer number one, to turn away God's wrath. The NIV translates the first part of verse 25 this way. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Now, that phrase, sacrifice of atonement, translates a Greek word that means propitiation. Now, very few people have ever heard that word, and fewer still understand what it means. Here's a very simple definition. Propitiation means to turn away wrath by the offering of a gift. In this context, it means that the death of Jesus turns away God's wrath. Now, I realize that God's wrath is not a particularly popular topic these days. I mean, many pastors are actually a little bit afraid to preach on God's wrath, lest they incur the wrath of their congregation. Much modern gospel preaching is rather anemic precisely because we preach less than the whole truth to guilty sinners. If all we say to the lost is, God loves you, have a nice day, we are in danger of making them think that their continued rebellion doesn't matter to God. Instead, we must warn them, as Luke did in chapter 3, verse 7 of his gospel, to flee from the wrath which is to come. The best illustration of propitiation <clears throat> comes from the Old Testament Day of Atonement, when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies with the blood of a goat. Leviticus chapter 16 describes the ritual in exacting detail, and you really have to take time to read it. It must be the high priest and him alone, and it must happen on the Day of Atonement and on no other day. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take off his regular clothes and put on a sacred linen tunic. He would sprinkle the goat blood on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and that lid made of gold was called the mercy seat. And inside the Ark was a copy of the Ten Commandments representing the law of God. By the sprinkling of blood, the sins of the people were covered. That covering by means of blood was called the atonement. The sacrifice of blood turned away the wrath of God. Now, why is this important? Well, it's because God's justice demands death as the ultimate punishment for sin. Now, what does the symbolism of the Day of Atonement represent? Well, during the other days of the year when God looked down from heaven, he saw the Ten Commandments inside the ark. The Ten Commandments stood as a, <clears throat> a testimony against the sins of the nation of Israel. But on the Day of Atonement, God saw the blood of the sacrifice that covered the sin of the people of Israel. The sacrificial system had one major problem. The problem was it provided temporary forgiveness because it was based on the blood of animals. We know that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Hebrews 10.4 tells us that. That is why every year, year after year, the high priest would go in and do it all over again. And when he died, another high priest would take his place and do the same thing each year on the Day of Atonement. The Old Testament system provided no permanent forgiveness of sins. I mean, if you don't believe that, read Romans, or Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 28. When Jesus died on the cross, 
the blood that he shed was like the blood on the mercy seat. It turned away the wrath of God and covered the sin of the entire human race. Now, how could that be? Well, in the Old Testament, it's the blood of bulls and goats. In the New Testament, it's the eternal blood of Jesus, which has eternal value in the eyes of God. When Jesus hung on the cross, he cried out in Mark 15:34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, friends, in that moment, all the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. He became sin for us, and all of your sin and all of mine and the sins of the entire world were poured out on Jesus. In that moment, God turned his face away from his own son. To call the death of Christ a propitiation means that God's wounded heart is now satisfied with the death of his son. When a sinner trusts Jesus, God accepts him based on the bloody sacrifice Christ made when he died on the cross. Now, why did God do it this way? Well, because he's an infinite God of infinite holiness. All sins committed against him are infinite in magnitude. And only a gift of infinite value could turn away the infinite wrath of God. And only God himself in the person of his son could make such an infinite gift. That's why our piddling little efforts to turn aside God's wrath are doomed to failure. We often think that just going to church or being baptized or saying our prayers or being good or stopping a bad habit or trying hard to be better will some, somehow turn away the infinite wrath of God. Friends, the wonder of propitiation is that the offended party, that's God, who has every right to be angry at sinners himself, offers the gift, the death of his son Jesus, to turn away his own wrath, thus making it possible for guilty sinners to be forgiven. The cross is the place where grace and wrath meet. When we come to God through Jesus, we come to a friendly father and not to an angry God. Here's answer number two. It's to demonstrate God's justice. In verses 25 and again in, in 20, verse 26, God or Paul says that God set forth Christ as a propitiation for sin to demonstrate his justice. So that he might be, in verse 26, just, just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, over the years, I've heard various reasons why people had become disillusioned with Christianity. Among them was, how could an all-knowing, all-loving God allow his son to be murdered on a cross to redeem my sins? Well, friends, there, that's an excellent question because it goes to the very heart of the gospel. Why did Jesus have to die? Why would God put his own son to death, especially to save people who'd rebelled against him? In searching for the answer, it helps to think of another question. Since God is both all-powerful and infinitely gracious, why didn't he simply offer forgiveness to anyone who says, I'm sorry? Now, many people secretly think that's what God should have done. Then we wouldn't have to deal with the embarrassment of God killing his own son. Well, the answer goes like this. From a human point of view, God had a problem. Because God is holy, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. His justice demands that every sin be punished, no matter how small it may seem to us. If he were to forgive sin without proper punishment, he would cease to be holy and just. God would no longer be God because he would have denied his own character. And that just can't happen. All offenses against God must be punished. That's why sinners can't simply say, I'm sorry and instantly be forgiven. Someone must pay the price. You know, we follow the same principle in our criminal justice system. 
I mean, suppose a man is found guilty of embezzling $6 million from his employer. And let's further suppose that just before sentencing, he stands before the judge, confesses his crime, begs for mercy, and promises never to embezzle money again. How would you react if the judge accepted his apology and released him with no punishment? I mean, suppose the man had been convicted of rape and then was set free with no punishment simply because he apologized. Or what if he apologized for murdering a father and mother in front of their children and the judge set him free? What would we do with the judge who set them free? We'd probably want to throw that judge in jail for a long time. You see, friends, even in this life, a price must be paid for breaking the law. When lawbreakers are set free with no punishment, respect for the law disappears. When assassins are not punished, respect for the presidency disappears. The same principle applies to raising children. When parents refuse to discipline with tough love, they end up raising criminals instead of responsible adults. The same is true in the spiritual realm. When sin is not punished, it doesn't seem very sinful. God's problem was to devise a plan of salvation whereby he would remain holy and just and still provide a way of forgiveness for guilty sinners. Somewhere, somehow, there had to be a place where grace and wrath could meet. And that place, friends, is the cross of Jesus, the Messiah. But here's the second question I've heard. If God the Father is so all-loving, why didn't he come down and go to Calvary? Well, the answer is, he did. God came down to this earth in the person of his son, Jesus, and died for our sins. I mean, the paradox of salvation is this. God is a God of love and therefore wants to forgive sinners. But he is also a God of holiness who must not and cannot overlook sin. How could God love sinners and not and yet not overlook their sin? I mean, no one would have ever dreamed of his answer. God sent his own son to die for sinners. In that way, the just punishment for sin was fully met in the death of Jesus, and sinners who trust in Jesus could be freely forgiven. And only God could have done something like that. Thus, Paul says, God is both just in punishing sin and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. I mean, think of it. In the death of this one man, all sins of all humanity are fully paid, past, present, and future. As a result, those who believe in Jesus find that their sins are gone forever. This is the heart of the gospel. God's holiness demands that sin be punished, and God's grace provides the sacrifice. What God demands, he supplies. Salvation is a work of God from first to last. It is conceived by God, provided by God, and applied by God. Here's answer number three to our question. It is to justify us freely by God's grace. Romans 3.24 tells us that we are justified freely, freely by his grace. And that word freely literally means without a cause. Did you get that? Salvation comes without a cause in us. God saves us even though he can't find a reason within us to save us. Salvation is a free gift. There's nothing in us that causes God to want to save us. No good works, no inner beauty, no great moral attainment or intellectual merit of any kind. When God saves us, he does it even though we don't deserve it. Now, here's a great definition of grace. What you need, but do not deserve. I'll say that again. What you need, but do not deserve. God declares us righteous when we have nothing but the sewage of sin in our veins. 
This is the doctrine of free grace. God saves people who don't deserve it. God saves people who deserve condemnation. It is pure, abounding, astounding grace. Now let me go a step further. When God saves people, he doesn't do it because of any potential he sees in them. Now I think most of us secretly feel, though we probably never say it out loud, that there must be must have been something in us worth saving. Boy, human pride sure dies hard, doesn't it? But it's not as if God saw a musician and said, we need a good guitar player in the praise band, I think I'll save him. Or, you know, she's got lots of money and we could use some extra cash for world missions. Or, that husband and wife would make excellent ushers, I want them on my team. To that I'd say, no, no, a thousand times, no. God does not save based on your potential. Apart from the grace of God, the only potential you have is the potential for eternal damnation. When God saves, he saves by free grace apart from anything in us or anything we might bring to the table later. This is a shocking truth. It's hard to hear, but it's entirely biblical. And in the end, it's the most comforting because it means that anyone, anywhere, at any time can come to Christ for salvation. No one has any advantage since As Romans 3.23 says, there's no difference because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's an old story told about an elderly country woman uh, who trusted in Jesus for salvation. One of her skeptical friends heard about it and intending to make fun of her, asked if she had indeed become one of the saints. Yes, I have, she replied. Well, said the skeptic, are you now an expert in theology? I'm no Bible scholar, she replied. I'm simply positive that God loves me enough that he'd rather go to hell than have me go there, and that God loves me enough that he'd rather leave heaven and die than for me not to get to heaven to be with him. Well, the skeptic insisted, is that all you know about it? Can't you at least explain what being saved by grace means? That is one of your central doctrines, after all, isn't it? And she thought for a moment, then answered with these words. Jesus stood in my shoes at Calvary. Now I'm standing in his. You know, it would be hard to find a better explanation of justification by grace. This is so hard for us to believe. I mean, still in us, we'd rather work for our salvation. But God's gift of salvation costs us nothing, even though it costs Jesus everything. The Lord now says to us, says to us take it by faith. It's yours. It's free. I paid the cost for you. Some 200 plus years ago, there was a man in England by the name of William Cowper who often struggled with bouts of severe depression. At one point, he became extremely distraught, fearing that he was under the wrath of God. Let me read you part of his testimony. He writes, I flung myself into a chair by the window and there saw the Bible on the table by the chair. I opened it up and my eyes fell on Romans 3.25, which says of Christ, whom God has made a propitiation through faith in his blood. Then and there I realized what Christ's blood had accomplished, and I realized the effects of his atonement for me. I realized God was willing to justify me, and then and there I trusted Jesus Christ, and a great burden was lifted from my soul. You know, looking back on that day, William Cowper wrote a hymn that many of us still sing today. Here's part of the first verse. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stain. Friends, has the blood of Jesus been applied to your heart? God's Son has made propitiation. 
He turned away the wrath of God. He shed his blood in what was a place of judgment. It's now a mercy seat for anyone and everyone who will come to God through Jesus. Because of the cross, salvation is now entirely free. What must then I do to be saved? Must I be holy or good or change my ways? Must I promise to clean up my act? Well, here's God's answer in Romans 3.24. Freely by his grace. But you know, the human heart still cries out, I must do something. I've got to make my contribution. So what do we do? We clean up, we go to church, we pay our money, we go, we enter the waters of baptism and on and on. We think God will never forgive us until we do something to deserve us. But friends, I can't tell you this often enough, it is not so. God gives his justification away freely and if you try to pay for it, he's going to throw it in your face. How then do we receive God's gift of salvation? Simply by asking for it. Do you know in your heart that you want Jesus in your life? Well, you can have him today. This is the wonder of the gospel. Now, don't say, I'll do my best and come to Jesus later. I mean, that's the language of hell. If you cannot, if you cannot be, you cannot be saved if you hold to your notions of goodness. If you want to be saved, remember these four words. Run to the cross. Run to the cross and lay hold of Jesus who loved you and died for you. God is fully satisfied with the work of his son. The demands of the law have been fully met. God's wrath, grace and wrath have met at the cross and the result is the free offer of salvation to everyone who believes. If you have any stirring in your heart, any sense of your need, any desire to be saved by grace, that desire has been placed in your heart by God. The rest, as they say, is up to you. Run to the cross, friends, where Jesus waits to meet you. Until next time, see the vision. Live the mission. Feel the passion.